This is Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. We won't ask you to stand and sing for this podcast, but if you were in the audience during this New York Philharmonic season opener, that would have been expected. Performances of the Star-Spangled Banner to kick off opening nights across the United States are often considered a great patriotic tradition. But others say the anthem is out of place and out of mood. The Fort Worth Symphony has recently drawn online criticism over its practice of playing the anthem before every concert. In a moment, we will talk with a conductor about the national anthem and other opening night rituals. But first, we're joined by Mark Ferris, author of Star-Spangled Banner, The Unlikely Story of America's National Anthem, a book about the song's 200-year history. A cellist with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra wrote a critical Facebook post about the fact that the Fort Worth Symphony plays the national anthem before every single concert. And he didn't think concerts should be nationalistic or patriotic events unless the program is specifically patriotic. What's your take on that? I really have no problem with these spontaneous displays of patriotism. You know, Americans, if you're proud of the, of the country, I don't see why that is an issue. What was interesting in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram article is that the Oklahoma City Philharmonic has been doing this opening every concert with the Star-Spangled Banner since 1990 because the audience petitioned them to do that. That was very interesting to me. And I think it's wonderful that we have a Philharmonic Orchestra in Oklahoma City and in all these other towns. It's just a great thing. So for me, I don't really understand why this is such a controversial thing. Well, I guess one could argue that if the music, the sheet music is in front of the players, it's not a spontaneous display of patriotism. It's a pre-programmed one. True, um, but this seemed to come out of 9-11 in Fort Worth. And that's 14 years of what they called a tradition, which, you know, it's obviously something that was invented and uh, that people spontaneously, well, in, you know, back then, spontaneously, they, they decided to do it. The only other 9-11 tradition that I know of is the New York Yankees who play God Bless America during the seventh inning stretch. And that's the only holdover from 9-11 that I know about. Can playing the national anthem ruin the mood that the conductor is trying to set with the rest of the program? That would be the one thing where I would say maybe it, it just to shoehorn it in there just for the sake of doing it could take away from the the thematic program. But doing it in the beginning, you don't have to do it in the beginning. You could do it after intermission. You could do it at the end of the program. There's this myth that the first time the Star-Spangled Banner was ever played at a baseball game was at the 1918 World Series. And that actually isn't true because the first documented time is 1862 here in Brooklyn. But they played it during the seventh inning stretch, and that was spontaneous on the band's part. So maybe if they did it before the second, uh, you know, after the intermission, and then, you know, usually the final piece that an orchestra does is pretty robust. It's a symphonic, usually a big piece. Um, I don't think the memory of the Star-Spangled Banner is going to really encroach on the feeling of the whole new new piece that they're playing. So during World War II, almost every performance, movies, theaters, concerts, it was played sometimes before and after the first show and the last show. Uh, it was it was played all the time. So during wartime, you know, that's definitely a time when people do like to express their love of country. 
And speaking of wartime, in your book, you wrote about a German-born conductor of the Boston Symphony named Karl Muck, who put together an all-German program during World War I, and that didn't go so well. Yeah, he uh, suffered from a little bit of bad timing there, and also he was set up. Um, there were some, when he went to Providence, he was asked to open with the Star Spangled Banner, and he didn't get the message, and he didn't play it. The upshot is he didn't play it. And he got tarred with the brush of being uh, unpatriotic and a pro-German sympathizer, and they ran him out of the country. They deported him. The Chicago Symphony had a similar scandal as well. Uh, Some players were pro-German, and they hissed uh, when their fellows stood for our national anthem. So it was definitely a lot of politics going on. So I love all this political and controversial use of really what is just a song. You know, it's a song, but it's imbued with so much meaning, and that's what's, that's what's interesting to me. The Star-Spangled Banner didn't even become the national anthem until 1931. Why then? Uh, it's uh, one, of the, one of the burning questions that I sought to answer. You might think it was a, a contrived attempt to, you know, enforce patriotism on people during the Depression, but that is not the answer. Uh, the Star-Spangled Banner really became the de facto anthem almost immediately after it was written. Our national anthem really should be Yankee Doodle. It is the oldest patriotic song that is still sung today, and it's associated with the Revolutionary War. But obviously, Yankee Doodle is not taken very seriously. Hard to have a national anthem with macaroni in it. Yeah, Yeah, and that is actually one of the real verses. Uh, It was about, um, you know, people in England aping continental... um, cuisine and, and habits. Uh, it, there was a it fashion for all things Italian in the 1750s and 1760s. So is there a standard version of the Star Spangled Banner that orchestras play? Another very good question. There is no official version of the song. There were two that were done around World War I. Uh, Walter Damrosch, uh, John Philip Sousa. There's two versions. One's called the education version. One's called the military version. I believe that the Fort Worth Symphony Orchestra played the military version. Uh, I listened to their version, and it's very stirring. Uh, you've got a lot of brass, and uh, on the Rockets' red glare part, they have a nice fluffy string part that comes in. It was really very nice. I, I thought they rushed a couple of the passages, but that's okay. You don't always hear it done so well so orchestrated. Often it's a performance piece, and I loved how everyone was was participating. They were singing very loudly and really feeling it, and that's something that I love. I think it's a real myth that this is a, a hard song to sing, and how can people not remember the words? Shakespearean actors can go on and on and on. Thousands and thousands of stilted, you know, ver- verse, and a professional singer can't remember 81 words in the first verse. There's four verses. We're only singing the first verse, and if I can sing the Star's Mangle Banner... I think a professional singer should be able to. Well, as somebody who has sung the Star-Spangled Banner to open a Cincinnati Reds game, I can tell you that when that moment comes, your mind can go blank. Mine didn't because I was lucky because the words were all up there. (laughs) But in a pressure situation like that, your mind can go blank. And I also have to say... There is a high note in there, and I'm not talking about the interpolated high note that opera singers throw in, but there is a high note in there that is very difficult for, or the range of the piece is very difficult for your average Joe on the street or Jane on the street to sing. This is true. This is true. But it also plays well as as a instrumental. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean. I just, I just, I think we've got like this mental block in this country. Uh, there's a great... Uh, YouTube version, the first 
rendition of the Star Spangled Banner at the Boston, I guess they call it, I forget. It, was, it used to be the Boston Garden, where the Boston Bruins play after the, Mar- the Boston Marathon bombing. And the singer uh, sang the first maybe six words, dropped the mic, and used it as a wand to conduct the audience. And everybody sang along. It's a chilling version. And I think that proves that you know, if you really want to, you can pull it off. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Mark Ferris is the author of Star Spangled Banner, The Unlikely Story of America's National Anthem. Thank you. This is the version of the Star-Spangled Banner that got Igor Stravinsky in trouble when he brought it to the Boston Symphony Orchestra during World War II. The arrangement, with its added dominant seventh chord, got the attention of the Boston Police, which is not exactly an organization with avant-garde sensibilities. They issued Stravinsky a warning, claiming that there was a law against tampering with the national anthem. Stravinsky's arrangement is one of several that our next guest has conducted. Dr. Leon Botstein is president of Bard College and music director of the American Symphony Orchestra. He joins us on the phone. So there's been a debate in Fort Worth, Texas, that the routine playing of the national anthem before orchestra concerts there, they do it at every concert, spoils the mood of what follows. Do you agree with that? I don't think that it necessarily spoils the mood. All rituals have the uh, habit of being uh, ignored because they're repeated too often. So it's um, everybody knows what's that phrase that uh, familiarity breeds contempt. So I think if they think they're doing something patriotic, they're making a big mistake. The unintended consequence is that the uh, Star Spangled Banner, which should be something special, becomes wallpaper. So I I think it's just a a backfiring. Let them play it all they want. Uh, This kind of ritual um, symbolic patriotism is a bad excuse for real patriotism. So I I don't think it's it's so troublesome. I wouldn't get upset about it. The Star-Spangled Banner uh, is uh, an emblem, like all national anthems. Various countries have different attitudes toward it. A law was passed in the United States against it. It makes a famous appearance in Madison. Butterfly, um, the American composer Buck uh, wrote actually a concert overture based on it. And uh, it's been arranged many, many times, you know, for orchestra orchestrated. And uh, it has its effect, especially if you're on tour in foreign countries when you travel. It also has an effect if, uh, when I traveled on behalf of the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra with music director, which is the Radio Orchestra of Israel. We came to the United States, and we would play it um, often at the beginning of a concert together with Hatikva. Uh, so these the are the Israeli national anthem. The Israeli national anthem. So this is a this is a kind of a, a ritual which has its variations. Uh, you know, I like to think that being an American is not about loving the flag or the national anthem, but loving the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So we define patriotism differently, and I think to repeat it at every concert is a kind of cheap patriotism. It's not a real patriotism. And it has, unfortunately, the negative effect. Um, it's like repeating a prayer every day without understanding its meaning. 
I think there are people in Texas, though, who would repeat those prayers and find meaning in them. And audiences in Texas, at least, seem to enjoy this, even if a cellist didn't. Well, if the audiences like it, why not? I mean, Star Spangled Banner is not a great national anthem. It happens to be ours. It's slightly unsingable, and the words don't really make a lot of sense. Uh, but um, it is our national anthem. And uh, uh, so I, I don't actually find uh, this practice uh, particularly um, um, troubling. Uh, and I would think that if the audience actually likes it, Maybe it doesn't spoil the mood. In, a, in most concerts, you have to change your mood because the programs are multiple pieces, and all of the multiple pieces require different kinds of concentration. So I think I kind of warm up. The question is whether the audience sings along. The other great thing about the national anthem is it's one of the few things that you can get the audience to participate with. So If um, they can sing it, because it's not right. the easiest piece in the world to sing. That's right. So one of the great things about my experience being, uh, having to do on holidays, Hatikva in Jerusalem, is, is how moving it was to hear the entire you know, audience behind you sing along as we stood and played it. And you have the same feeling. I'm an immigrant. So, I, you know, the national anthem means something to me. And actually, it's something fabulous about hearing it. Uh, of course, I don't hear it every day. But I think that... Um, you know, Ernest Bloch wrote a symphony called America, and he wanted it to be a sort of popular symphony. At the end, he wrote his own kind of tune, which he wanted the audience to sing along with the orchestra at the end of the concert. So one of the advantages of the national anthem is precisely why we could use America the Beautiful too, that it's an opportunity for an otherwise passive audience to join in. So I think there are ways, as they say, to spin this in a more positive way than to object on it just because it's a kind of ritual patriotism that offends somebody. But I, I think it's wrong to be offended by it. You have conducted versions by Stravinsky, Morton Gould, and also by Leopold Stokowski, who founded your American Symphony Orchestra. Yes. What does each of those arrangements bring to the piece? Well, they bring basically changes in orchestration. Uh, Stravinsky is the only one that fools around a little bit with it, but these are all concert versions. Uh, I think, you know, Morton Gould was just expert in, in making something happen. Also practical, easy to play, uh, easy to sing along. The Stokowski is sort of less so. You have the same issue with all national anthems because they're really not written for orchestral uses. So you have all these orchestra musicians on stage and you want to use them all, so you have to, you have to orchestrate it. There's a beautiful orchestration, for example, of Hatikva by Kurt Weill. So people, you know, many efforts to make the Star Spangled Banner somehow more dramatic, more brilliant. Of course, there are band arrangements, many, many band arrangements, because of the use in military bands. But, but the best, uh, Morton Gould probably uh, is uh, the most attractive. Bard just started a new master's degree program and training orchestra called the Orchestra Now, Tone for short in which participants get free tuition, a $25,000 annual stipend, and health benefits. What inspired that? Well, many years of, of, of realizing that the finest musicians that come out of conservatories have a deficit in their training, while the athletic part is there. The connection of art to the rest of the world, what, what does music mean? How does music shed a light on the world we live in, past, present, and future? So... This training program was inspired by the idea that these young professionals, 
uh, like residents in a medical school, uh, begin to practice their craft, but under guidance. And that guidance is not technical guidance, but these are students who are going to be talking with art historians, philosophers. What is going to happen to all these musicians when they graduate from this program? So many young musicians competing for very few jobs. They're going to invent their own jobs. They're going to be entrepreneurs. They're going to create new ensembles. They're going to begin to connect music to the community, both as teachers not in sort of the private teaching way, but more with uh, different kinds of modes of teaching. And they can actually become the core of the leadership of, uh, of a new generation of orchestral musicians that's going to insist on a different kind of art making. Well, speaking of reinventing and musicianship, we will end this with Vladimir Horowitz making the piano sound like an entire orchestra with his arrangement of the Star Spangled Banner. Leon Botstein, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Leon Botstein is the president of Bard College. Its new ensemble, The Orchestra Now, Tone, begins performing next week and will appear at the Metropolitan Museum of Art on December 6th. Details are on our website, wqxr.org. Brian Wise produces Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.